Christina was born, Maria's husband died, and Maria and Christina were left very much on the brink of poverty. In fact, they lived in a one-room shack in one of the poorest parts of town. The only furniture they had were two sleeping pallets on each side of the room. There was an old calendar that had pictures that they would turn every now and then, and that was really the only decoration in this house. Uh, Maria was determined she was going to work and support and raise her daughter, and she did. She worked very hard for a number of years. And um, by the time that that, uh, uh, Christina had become a beautiful young lady at the age of 15, Maria's wages were actually adequate enough to provide a comfortable living. It wasn't luxurious, but it was enough. They they made it. They They got by. Well, I'm not sure exactly when in Christina's mind the thought developed. Perhaps it grew over years. Christina, though, one day announced to her mother that she just wanted more. She wanted more than the small village, more than that house, uh, more than, more than the, her plan, more than her mother's plan for marriage at a young age and lots of babies. She, she wanted more. She wanted to go to the city to see what life in the city would produce, what she could make for herself. And her mother warned her. Maria warned Christina. She said, now be, be careful. She knew, she knew, or she was afraid, rather, of what would happen to her daughter in a place like that with lots of temptations, lots of dangers, and no real support. Uh, Christina kept talking about it. She kept talking about it. I want to go. I want to go. Maria kept saying, no, you don't want to. You'll, you'll be in trouble. You'll get in trouble. Eventually, uh, one morning, though, uh, Maria woke up and Christina's bed was empty. She was gone. Maria was heartbroken, she was concerned, so she, uh, uh, she uh, got on a bus and went to the city after her daughter. Uh, before she actually went on the bus, though, she stopped at a local uh, a mart there in town and she took pictures of herself, a dozen pictures of herself in a photo booth, and took them with her to the city. She looked all over the place. What do beautiful young girls in a city do without any support or any resources? Her mother was afraid of the worst, so when she got to town, she started roaming through town, looking. She went to nightclubs, she went to hotels, she went to bars, she went anywhere that you might look for a prostitute. And everywhere she went, she took that picture of herself and she, she put it somewhere, not, not an obvious place, but someplace that could be seen. She left this picture of herself all over all these places that she went. She was there for a week. She ran out of money. She ran out of pictures. She ran out of places where she thought she could go look. So heartbroken, Maria got on a bus and went back home. Two weeks later, Christina was walking through a hotel. It was in the morning. It was after she had worked that evening. She was leaving the hotel, uh, walking out, and she saw on a mirror in the lobby this tiny little picture of her mother. How in the world did it get there? She picked it up. She looked on the other side. And her mother had written a note. It said, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. I like this story. I like this story for a number of reasons. One of the chief reasons is because I want to be like this mother. I I want to parent like that. I want to be a husband like that. I want to be a pastor and a friend like that. No matter what happens to the people under my care. That's how I want to be. This is a, I aspire to this, to have this level of perseverance and constancy and 
forgiveness and love and pursuit. Do you want to be a friend like that? Don't you want to be a friend like that? A person like that? This morning we're going to talk about where that sort of love comes from. Where that sort of persevering, constant, pursuing, rescuing love comes from. And we're going to do that this morning. We're going to talk about that issue by returning to the book of Hosea. So if you haven't yet, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament prophecy uh, by Hosea. So we're going to look at Hosea chapter 3 this morning. Hosea, of course, we've been, this is the third or fourth week, we've looked at Hosea. It's that little book that's nestled in the minor prophets, actually toward the beginning of the minor prophets, toward the end of the Hebrew scriptures. So if you're in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Psalms, turn right. If you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, turn left. And you'll eventually find the little book of Hosea. And I want to turn to chapter 3. We have this tradition in our church. It's not just a tradition, it's a conviction. We have a conviction that God speaks to us through His Word. So we move carefully through books of the Bible. And that's what we're doing with the book of Hosea this morning. And our focus in recent weeks has been on uh, the, the, the prophet's marriage, Hosea's marriage. This is not what we would expect, but God commanded Hosea to marry a woman who would break her vows. She would be an adulteress. Um, it, it's likely that she already, before they were married, she already had a reputation for promiscuity. In fact, it, some people think, some scholars think, that she may have worked at a pagan temple in Israel. Some who worshipped the pagan god Baal, or Baal, Baal is probably a little bit more correct than Baal, but we all often are used to saying Baal. A Baal was a perverted voyeur. And in order to worship him, uh, you would go and, and pay your money and sleep with a temple prostitute to satisfy Baal so that he would bless you with good crops. And some people think that, that Hosea's wife was one of those temple prostitutes. Now, the reason that God commanded Hosea to, do, to marry her is because that this marriage would serve as a living parable of the relationship between God and his people Israel. Hosea and his wife Gomer, God and his people Israel. Marriage and God's relationship with his people have two things in common. One of them is covenant. They're both covenants, promises. God made, was in covenant with Israel. And both of these relationships, secondly, they are both relationships of love. We're going to talk about this more, I'm sure, in the future. There's an important Hebrew word that we're going to consider. It's actually in Hosea 4. It's the Hebrew word chesed. Uh, well, I've talked about this before. It's been a long time. Chesed, H-E-S-E-D, or maybe C-H-E-S-E-D, depending on how you want to spell it. Chesed means loyal love. Uh, it combines this idea of covenant commitment, I'm not stopping, and affection. Loyal love. It's often translated in the, in the Bible as steadfast love, faithful love. This is the type of love that God has for Israel. It's chesed. Now for the third, third time this morning, we're going we're to focus on Hosea. He had a marriage that was marked by infidelity. And in that marriage there were children. There were children who were given the names. We talked about the children's names last week. Horrible names to give to children. Uh, that, that describe God's response to the nation and their spiritual adultery. God is determined to judge and forgive his people. That's what we have learned though, thus far. The theme of chapter 3 is reconciliation. Reconciliation brought about by God's rescuing love. Uh, we're going to talk about God's love this morning again. 
Because if you want to show this sort of loyal love, you have to first receive it. God's love cannot be imitated unless it is first experienced, received, revered, and then shown. That's how grace itself works. That's the most important how-to in the Bible. If we we were going to give a list of how to do things in the Bible, number one is receive and know God's love. And that's how you pass it on to anybody else. There's three movements in this text that that we're going to talk about this morning. Two of them describe what happened, the the what's of Hosea's reconciliation with Gomer. And then the, the middle one, the second one, we're going to talk about the why, why he did this. Um, Let's read the text. We'll read the text and then we'll move through Hosea 3, verses 1 through 5. So let's read here. Hosea 3, 1. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about an omer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in these last days. Three movements in the text. Here's number one. Hosea rescues Gomer. God rescues Israel. That's the first movement in this text. Hosea rescues Gomer. God rescues Israel. Verses one and two. We start with this command. God commands uh, Hosea. Hosea is actually here speaking in the first person. It's the first time in the book that he's spoken in the first uh, person. That, oh, that'll be important a little bit later, I think in a few weeks when we get later into Hosea. Um, And the command that God gives Hosea is to go be reconciled with his wife. That's what I think this text is teaching. Now, I need to explain that, though, because the Hebrew text is somewhat vague. It's purposefully vague. I'll tell you why in just a minute. Some scholars, though, because it's vague, think that this is not about the reconciliation of Hosea with his first wife, but a new marriage that God wants Hosea to enter into with, his, uh, with another woman, the beginning of a second marriage. I mention this because the notes in my study Bible say this. Maybe your study Bible says this. Um, it, it mentions it as a possibility. And the NIV translation in verse 1 is, is, is quite uh, a paraphrastic. It's quite a, a paraphrase. Here's what Dwayne Garrett said. It should be literally verse 1. And the Lord said to me again... Go love a woman loved by another and committing adultery, just as the Lord loves the children of Israel, even though they are turning to other gods and love raisin sweetmeats. I don't even know what that that is. We'll talk about how horrible that must be in a minute. No, the text is, is vague. It's intentionally vague. It says, go love a woman loved by another. Was this Gomer that he's supposed to go and love? Or is God telling the prophet to love someone else? Oh, here's a debate. Let's just enter into this a little bit here, this issue. One of the the issues that comes up is the the use of the word again in this verse and where the word again belongs. Does your text have again? It says, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Well, the NIV is taking a very strong position here that this 
Hosea is going back to Gomer. But the word again, the word again is actually in the middle of the sentence. So does the text say, the Lord said to me again, well, that's actually where it belongs. The Lord said to me again, go show your love to your wife. So is God speaking to Hosea the second time? Does again go with the first part of the verse? The Lord said to me again, he's speaking again. Or does it go with the second part? The Lord said to me, again, go show your love to your wife. Do you see the difference there? Well, oh, I've been reading some scholars and Hebrew experts, and they know more than I do about this language, and they don't know the answer to that question, where the again belongs. But actually, there is a solution. We have a solution, and it's in the text. God identifies this woman, Hosea, who's supposed to love. Go love a woman who is an adulteress. In chapter 1, God had commanded Hosea to go marry a woman who was promiscuous. She was not married, but she was doing all the things that an adulterous woman does. She was promiscuous, but not an adulteress. And now in chapter 3, he says, go marry an adulteress. Same activity, but since she's married, she's an adulteress now, breaking her marriage covenant. She's not merely promiscuous. She's an adulteress. Now think about this with me here. If this woman, this adulterous woman, is not Hosea's wife, who is committing adultery, then what is God commanding Hosea to do? Is God commanding Hosea to go find another, someone else who's married to someone else, another woman, married woman, and, and love her? If, if God is commanding Hosea to go love an adulteress who's not his wife, but who's married to someone else and is, she's committing adultery, what does that make Hosea? Makes Hosea an adulterer, right? She, if, she's mar- if she's not Hosea's wife, but she's married to someone else and is committing adultery, is God commanding the prophet to go become an adulterer himself? I don't think so. And then there's this comparison that God draws out. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. God has not taken a second wife. Hosea, your wife is the same, my wife is the same, go love Gomer. Now, all this provokes me to ask this question. Why does the text not name Gomer? Why, doesn't God, why didn't God say, go love, go love your wife, go love Gomer, go rescue your wife? Why does he speak in these generic, vague terms, go love a woman loved by another man? Why doesn't he identify Gomer? I think it's because... Gomer's identity as Hosea's wife has been obscured. It's been covered by the fog of her infidelity. It's not clear that she's Hosea's wife. She is, but you can't tell by her behavior. It's hard to see. Dwayne Garrett said again, I'm going to quote him, infidelity does not enhance your identity. It hides it. It makes you less of who you are, not more of who you are. You stop being yourself. Who you are is fades and is hidden. This is one of the consequences of sin in general. And, and related to this, it's, it's one of the oldest lies that there is. Sin, rebellion against God, does not make you more than who you are. It makes you less than who you are. Remember in the Garden of Eden, the serpent came in, and Adam and Eve were there, and, and the serpent said to Eve, if you eat that fruit that God commanded you not to eat, he says, He said, you won't die. In fact, you will become like God. You'll get better. 
You'll be enhanced if you, if you rebel against God. If God's boundaries against you are restrictive and you need to throw them off and things will be better for you. You'll be happier. Your life will be fuller. You'll be like God. That is a lie. It is a lie to believe that rebellion against God brings color and life and joy. There was a movie, it was released in 1998, it was called Pleasantville. I don't think I remember it as particularly being a worthwhile movie, uh, but it's an interesting story, it was filmed in black and white, most of it. It centers on two teenage uh, siblings, they're twins actually, David and Jennifer. And one night David and Jennifer are home, uh, their parents are out, and they start arguing about what they're going to watch on television. This was 1998, there was only, I don't know, three screens in the house instead of 42. So they had a real dilemma about what they were going to watch. They had to watch the same thing on the one television in their house. It was terrible, the last century was horrible, how did we make it? So David and Jennifer, they're arguing about what they're going to watch on television, and uh, she wants to watch some rom-com movie, and he wanted to watch a a television marathon there was a station showing 24 hours, uh, an old television show from the 50s and 60s called Pleasantville. They're fighting about it. They break the TV. The TV repairman comes, fixes the television, and, and as soon as they hit the remote through the magic of television, David and Jennifer end up back in the show Pleasantville. Pleasantville was one of those old black and white comedies that some of you used to watch where everything was perfect. Every mother stayed home all day and vacuumed wearing her pearls. Every father went off uh, to work hard. Uh, The fire department never put out any fires. All they did all day was rescue cats from trees. Every child was obedient. It was wonderful and, and safe and beautiful. Well, David and Jennifer end up back in Pleasantville, and because uh, they're liberated teenagers, they start turning things upside down. They start acting out of their emotions. They start breaking the rules. They start uh, uh, pushing out of the boundaries. And every time they do that, and every time they convince somebody to do something that they wouldn't normally do in this town, color is introduced into the movie. Maybe the most interesting thing about it is that every now and then uh, there'll be something in color. Everything else will be black and white, but there'll be a red apple. Ah, symbolism there. There'll be a, a or, or something else will, will turn. And as people start breaking the boundaries and breaking the rules, their life becomes more colorful and more full. That's how you have real life. You need to break the boundaries. You have to stop being repressed because society and culture and your family and especially God, especially God, they're holding you back. Actually, the Bible has another story to tell in contrast to that movie. Mark chapter 5, it's a great scene. Jesus and, and the disciples go across the Sea of Galilee and they come to the region of the Gerasenes. And there they meet a man who is demon-possessed. He is as in contact with evil as you possibly can be. And, and his life is a mess. He lives in tombs by himself. He's naked. He refuses to be clothed. He screams all night and it echoes through this, these canyons. And he, he cuts himself with stones. And they've tried to chain him up for his own good and because they're afraid of him, the people who live around there. And he breaks the chains. And he runs at Jesus and he's screaming at Jesus. And Jesus, with the power that he has, casts the demons out. And, and, and later, uh, the townspeople come and they see Jesus, and to their surprise, they can't believe it. They're shocked. There the man is, clothed in his right mind, eating food with Jesus and talking to him like a normal human being. 
your association with evil, with rebellion against God, it doesn't fulfill your life. It empties it. It breaks it. It destroys it. God is not repressive. There is freedom to be found in embracing the purposes for which he has created you. A fish outside of water, a fish outside of water may be very happy to be free from the confines of the ocean, but he's going to die real quick. And a bird who, who puts themselves in the water might be really happy because they're not uh, uh, bounded by the currents of the air, but he is not truly free, is he? This, this infidelity, this adultery, what, what Gomer has done has not enhanced her personality. It has, has obscured it. Now, verse 2 tells us what Hosea did to rescue Gomer. He goes and buys her back. That's strange. Uh, the text is not specific enough to tell us how Gomer went from being a wife to being the property of someone else. I, I don't know. Maybe she had accumulated debts somehow. Maybe she, uh, there's a debtor that, that needed to be paid. Maybe she'd sold herself into slavery. I suppose that's possible. Maybe she went back to the temple, and this is the, the, the temple leader is demanding that, that Hosea pay if, if he wants to take Gomer away. Regardless here, notice what happens. Hosea, Gomer is, let's see, how do I want to say this? Hosea has taken Gomer to himself twice. First by covenant, and now by paying a price. She is doubly his. The price is interesting, isn't it? It, it talks about shekels and a, a measure of um, barley. Why money and barley? It seems like uh, maybe Hosea couldn't afford the full price in cash, so he has to throw in some grain too. The word buy in the text, so I bought her, is a word that implies haggling. So they had to go back and forth. Gomer, uh, Hosea came with all the money he had, and it wasn't enough. So he haggled and haggled, and finally, oh, I have some barley, I can give you barley. Okay, that, that's fine. He had to negotiate for his wife to get this price. Now, this is an example here that raises this question. Would you do something like this? How far would you go in order to rescue your wife or, or your son or your friend? A few years ago, I, I listened to an audio book. It, it wasn't, wasn't great literature. I was just listening to it. I was driving around town. It was about a family. They were, they were sailing in the Caribbean. You know, just a normal middle-class suburban family in their yacht in the Caribbean. And, and they were sailing around. And, and uh, w- while they were anchored one night, pirates, modern-day pirates, came aboard, stole everything they could, shot everybody they thought that was on board except the, the young teenage girl. Her they took and left. Well, the father in the story survived. And the story is about how he went and rescued his daughter from the drug abuse and the sexual slavery into which she had been sold. It's a fine story. It's a great story. It's not deep literature. But it's about a heroic man and his love for his daughter. It's inspiring. I want to love my kids like this. But what if instead of kidnapped, that daughter had spat in her father's face and said, I hate you, and had run away from him? Should he rescue her then? 
Would you have done that? Some of you are not talking to your children right now. Some of you are not talking to your siblings. Some of you aren't talking to your spouse. Every situation is different. Every, it's often very complicated. This is the model that is set before us, though. Here's the, the speed, the pace that is set. Hosea went to his wife's lover and he bought her back. He's gone very far. He's gone far, far to rescue her. Now, let's move on and talk about the why of this passage. The why, what's motivating him? More importantly here, what's motivating God? This passage is ultimately about him. So let's look at the second movement here. We're going to talk about God's rescuing love. God's rescuing love. The command in verse 1, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife. That's a verb. I mentioned the noun chesed a few minutes ago. This is a verb, ahab. Ahab. And it, it, uh, it's as broad as our English word. Our English word for love is broad. This Hebrew word ahav is, is broad too. It can refer to love in marriage. It can refer to love between a parent and sibling. It can refer to a love between friends. 32 times in the Hebrew scriptures though, it refers to God's love. It's the word in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love ahav, the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor, ahav. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hosea's marriage is real. It's not just formal. It's not just a contract. He loved Gomer. He was affected toward her. And he has to return now and love her again. He is to love her like the Lord loves the Israelites. God's love cannot be imitated unless God's love is received. Our love for one another is the overflow of our joy in the love of God. So we're going to think about God's love and how it manifests itself in these verses in two different ways. First of all, we learn from this passage that God's love defies logic. It defies logic. I'm not trying to say that God is irrational or God is illogical or God is unreasonable. I'm saying that his love is inexplicable. Especially as we think about it here. There is no good reason for, the Isra- for God to love the Israelites at all. There's no good reason. In the first place, why is it, is it inexplicable? In the first place, Look what God loves the Israelites. Uh, verse one, verse uh, one says, "The Lord loves the Israelites." Ahav. What do the Israelites love? The text says, "The sacred raisin cakes." Huh. Go up to a little girl, sweet little cherub, and you say, "Your daddy loves you." What do you love? I love donuts not the answer you want your child i love you yeah dad and i love pizza okay is it not a fair exchange there's something wrong that these raisin cakes um somehow were involved in the worship of baal maybe you would you'd eat them in homage to him that's what they love the israelites loved raisin cakes god loved them they love raisin cakes Then notice here in the passage, Gomer makes no effort at all to be rescued. She doesn't do any of this. Hosea does it all. Hosea, he he takes the initiative. He pays the whole price. He does everything to rescue her. 
does everything to bring her home. That's how the Lord loves the Israelites. Then there's, there's the fact here, as we look in the Hebrew Scriptures, God does not gain anything from his covenant with the Israelites. They have nothing that he needs. There is illogic in this. It's, it's inexplicable. He doesn't rescue them to gain something from them. He does it for his sake because he loves them. This is love that defies logic. One of the best places in the Hebrew Scriptures to talk about God's love is actually in the book of Deuteronomy. So I would love it for you if you would take your Bible and turn to me to the left quite a ways, almost uh, toward the very beginning, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 is where I'd like to direct your attention for a few minutes this morning. We're going to talk about God's... We're going to come back to Hosea 3 in just a few minutes, but I want to look at Deuteronomy 7 for a minute. Now, while you're turning there, I'm going to go on a tangent for just a minute. I don't want to be understood, misunderstood this morning. We're reveling in God's love and how awesome God's love is for the undeserving. And it's communicated through this image of marriage, human marriage. My fear is that someone's going to take this concept and use it as an excuse to make some sort of a horrible marriage decision. You picture it, the young woman comes home with her fiancé and she says to her parents, I know he sells drugs and has two girlfriends, but I love him like God loves him. So I'm going to love him. Don't do that. Do I need to say that? Don't do that. See, the same book that uh, tells you about Hosea and Gomer and God and the Israelites also tells you not to marry someone who doesn't share your spiritual commitment to Jesus. Right? Don't say something foolish like that. And, and by that, not just that they can check Christian on a box, but someone who is keeping pace with you in following Jesus. I heard one young lady once say that her goal in life is to get so lost in God, positively so in, into following him faithfully, that any boy who's interested would have to love God that much to find her. And, and, and secondly here, recognize that in this relationship between God and the Israelites, God has power, he has wisdom, he has understanding of the situation that you do not have. God warns you because you're not smart enough, wise enough, or strong enough. God warns you not to befriend and not to marry someone foolishly. So don't use this story of Hosea and Gomer to enter into the covenant of marriage naively. All right, that's a little bit of a tangent, just a commercial, and now I'm finished. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you are. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, to then, defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. We've seen this concept before, haven't we, in the Bible. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Keep the pin in that word, sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession why 
Why has God chosen them? Verse 7. The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your ancestors that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the Pharaoh, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Not because you're stronger, not because you're larger, not because you're richer, not because you're better looking than any other nation on earth. In fact, if God was looking for a rich nation to be his people or a powerful nation to be his people or a a numerous nation to be his people, Israel was last in line for all of those categories, in all of those categories. It's because God loves you. Verse 8, it was because the Lord Ahav, he loved you. Verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love, chesed, to a thousand generations of those who love him, Ahav, and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. There is no earthly reason for God to love these people. None. Not at all. It has to be a heavenly reason. It has to be a heavenly reason. It's in the heart of God himself. This is an expression of the kindness of God. Not because they deserved it, but in fact, contrary to what they deserve. David Paulison said, we shouldn't talk about God's love being unconditional. It's too weak a word, unconditional. God's love is actually contra-conditional against conditions. It's against reasons that God should love us. It's a love that rescues. Mike Billmore said this, God saves no matter how our spiritual distress manifests itself, whether it's alienation, enslavement, condemnation, or fear. God's rescuing love reaches to all situations and in all directions. There is no situation, not one, outside the reach of God's rescuing love. God's love is so vast, it's so magnificent, that it takes a miraculous work of the Spirit of God for you to understand it. Remember, Paul prayed. He prayed for the Ephesians. I pray that your eyes will be opened so that you will understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and that you might know this love that surpasses knowledge. That's an awesome phrase. I want you to love God's, know God's love that surpasses knowledge. It defies logic in ways more than you can imagine. He rescues. He rescues people like you with a past like yours. Now there's a second quality here to God's love in this passage that we should consider for a moment. Uh, It's not specific to these five verses back in Hosea, but it might come to mind in the rest of the book of Hosea. God's love defies logic. It's true. Secondly, though, here's a question Does God's love overthrow justice? And the answer is no, emphatically no. Now, after you've written that down, overthrow justice, I want to explain why we're going to talk about this for just a minute this morning. It's it's very important to the Old Testament, but it has a certain relevance today. Most of you are wise enough that you avoid the evangelical blogosphere, the evangelical life on the Internet. You're wise to avoid. There's a lot of unnecessary, useless... It's kind of like Pinterest, but... Um, so, uh, this past week there was a, a pastor, uh, he pastors a church of 16,000 people, and he posted online one of his sermons, two minutes from one of his sermons, 
and he said that God, in order to rescue us, broke his own law. That God had to, for the sake of love, in order to love us, God had to break his own law. That is not well said. It is not true. But I think I actually understand the problem that he's wrestling with. Here's the problem. How can a holy God love unholy people? How can he say that he loves the Israelites in light of all that they have done, all that he said about them in chapter 2? Their lewdness, their cravings for other gods, their crediting false gods with the blessings he gives them, their rebellion, their adultery. How, How can he say that he is holy and he loves such unholy, rotten people? How can that be? This is a little bit like the food critic who, want, who, who talks to you about how he knows all the finer ins and outs of, of great cuisine and he's the master of wine and cheese and fine French cooking. And he loves it and he revels in it and he's the master of it and he eats at McDonald's 13 times every week. Right? How can you love gourmet food and eat those fries? There's this tension in the Bible. Actually, one scholar said, this is the great tension of the Old Testament. How can God be just and loving at the same time? I raise this because some of you feel this tension in your own life. How can God love me in light of all that I have done? In light of my track record, how can you seriously tell me that God loves me? There's this tension between God's unholy, rotten people and himself, the holy, just, loving God. Well, that tension is finally resolved for us fully and finally on the cross. I printed out some verses I want you to look at in Romans chapter 3. Our blogging pastor friend should have read this verse before he preached his sermon. How can God declare his love for us and how can he declare his love for righteous, sinful peoples? Uh, um, D.A. Carson says this is the most important paragraph in the Bible. Romans 3.25 God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to receive by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had let the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How could God love the Israelites in light of all that they have done? How can he ignore their sin? That's actually what the text talks about, doesn't it? He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. How can he ignore what they have done? How can he do that? He did it because he was going to provide his own son to bear the justice that they deserved. God's justice was satisfied on the cross. This is the ultimate expression of God's love. He solved our sin problem himself. And he is the one who judges completely and perfectly And he is the one who forgives and declares unrighteous people forgiven. All who believe this, all who believe this have this assurance that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient. It's more than sufficient because it's God's answer to our problem. No one knows, even more than you, no one knows uh, how sinful you are. No one knows what justice must be extracted from you more than God, and he is the one who provided the substitute. Sufficient, more than sufficient for us. God's love defies logic, and it provides in every way 
for every word of his law to be fulfilled. This is how you learn to show love. This is how you learn to show this love at, at your home, in this church. It's by your reverent and glad reception of this love that God has for you. Now there's one more movement in Hosea chapter 3 that we need to think about here. One more move in this passage. And we're going to talk about it so that you don't mistake sentimentalism for love or think that God's love has no backbone, no, no standards, unholy love like that. We've talked about God's rescuing love. Now we're going to talk about His reconciling love. His reconciling love. How's He going to bring the Israelites back to Himself? We have this unusual relationship here in Hosea chapter 3, verse 3. Here's Hosea and Gomer. We're going back into their marriage for a minute. Verse 3 says, Then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. Hosea brings Gomer home, but for a time, many days, the text says, we don't know how long, for many days, this is not full restoration. There's no full uh, restoration of their relationship, no physical intimacy in their marriage for a certain period of time. Now, this is not a model for your marriage. Okay? Don't take this up as a model for your marriage. Um, if you're in the reconciliation process, I do not recommend quoting verse 3 to your husband or your wife. Okay? I don't think this is a model for your marriage. But it is a pointer to the fact that there is a process in reconciliation. Forgiving love is not weak, it's not sentimental, it's not wishy-washy. There are consequences for infidelity. Maybe, from a practical standpoint, you might experience this type of physical separation as part of your marital healing. Maybe verse 3 will help you too when, when you and your spouse are talking about consequences for violations of the rules that take place at your home. Your kids have messed up somehow. They've broken the rules. They've sinned. And you and your, your spouse, you, you're talking about this. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? What sort of consequences are there going to be? And your children will be tempted to say to you, you don't love me. Take away the keys to the car. Take away access to the computer. Uh, take away opportunities to be out of the house after 10 o'clock. Whatever you do. Your children will be tempted to say to you, you don't love me. This is not loving to have these consequences on me. Well, no. In fact, you can quote Hebrews 12 to them. It's the father who doesn't discipline his children who does not love them, not the father who does. Well, actually what's happening in verse 3, more than giving us wisdom about your marriage or your parenting, this passage actually points us to God's reconciliation with Israel. Remember, Hosea and Gomer, a picture of God and Israel. Israel is going to be separate from God for a time. Look at what, what the text says. The Israelites will live many days, many days, same word, without king or prince, no formal government, without sacrifice or sacred stones. Oh, remember that word from Deuteronomy 7, right? Sacred stones. Without ephod or household gods. There is going to be a period of time where they're cut off. I think Hosea here is talking about the exile that is going to come. The people are going to be taken out of the land. There's going to be no king, no prince, no temple, no sacrifice, no way to make atonement. Not just of the things that God commanded them, ephod and 
and uh, sacrifice, but the things of worshiping Baal either, Baal, no sacred stones, no household gods. And it's going to last many days. This is a discipline that's coming to the Israelites. In the days of Jesus, this is what the Israelites were like. They had no king uh, before them. They had a temple, but it was not at all like the temple that they had before. But, but there is coming a day. I still think it's in the future. It's in verse 5. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in these last days. They're going to turn. They're going to repent. They're going to seek the Lord. They're going to revere him. They're going to come trembling before him. They're going to experience all the blessings of his goodness. I think this is still in the future. I think this is still in the future for God, uh, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, the Jewish people. I think Romans 11 talks about this. God's going to rescue them. This is God's love. It's not a love that erases or ignores consequences. It's not a pushover love. It's love that's deep and rich and enduring. It stood for 4,000 years. It's a love that's enough for you regardless of what you have done and what you have become, it's enough for you to come home. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and if it's true that Paul says, what Paul says, that your love surpasses knowledge, how weak and feeble our efforts are, seem to speak about it. If it's past knowing, certainly in some ways it must be past describing, past speaking about. It's that wonderful. It's that rich and deep and strong and pure. And yet, Lord, we come to ask you to do the miraculous work of enabling us to understand, to get a glimpse of the wonders of your great love. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here this morning, and some of them are anxious. They're anxious as they follow you because they think about all they have done. Remind them, we pray, of your great love that provided a sacrifice for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we rest secure in him. For those, Father, who are here this morning and and perhaps have not yet crossed the line of faith to become a follower of Jesus, have turned to him. Lord, we pray that you would, you say that it's by your kindness that you draw people to yourself. Teach them, remind them by your spirit of your great love that provides forgiveness and life to all who believe. Father, make us a congregation that revels in the love of God and then shows it to one another and celebrates it before those who watch. Do this miraculous work, we pray, for your son's sake. We ask these things together in his name, saying, Amen.